Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This week, we take a look back at one of the many distribution companies that started and ended in a flash during the 1980s, Film Dallas Pictures. That was their fanfare there. Film Dallas began its life as a film investment limited partnership in 1984, formed by Sam Grog, Dean of the American Film Institute Conservatory, and Bob Burney, a former manager and projectionist at AMC Theaters, who was behind the renovation of the Inwood Theater in Dallas. One of their selling points to investors was that at least half of the money they raised to help finance movies needed to be spent on productions that were going to be filmed in the Dallas area. In their first round of raising financing, they would raise more than $2.5 million from three dozen investors, including the legendary film producer Roger Corman. The first film they would choose to invest in was Alan Rudolph's comedic drama Choose Me. Although the film would shoot in Los Angeles, Film Dallas would contribute $500,000 of the film's $700,000 production budget although after deferments of actors' salaries, that would rise to $1.3 million. Rudolph, a protege of Robert Altman's, had been making movies for more than a decade, and while he would have some critical successes with 1976's Welcome to L.A. and 1978's Remember My Name, Choose Me, which told the story of several strangers in the City of Angels connected to each other through a late-night relationship radio talk show and its host, would become his first relative hit film, grossing $2.5 million. Film Dallas investors would get a 60% return on their initial investment on the film, which was distributed by Cinecom Pictures. We'll be talking more about Cinecom in a future episode. While Choose Me was burning through art house cinemas in the fall of 1984, Film Dallas would become involved in three more movies. The Dirt Bike Kid, starring Peter Billingsley in his first role after playing Ralphie in A Christmas Story, was conceived and produced by Julie Corman, who also invested in film Dallas along with her husband. Billingsley plays Jack, who finds a magic dirt bike with a mind of its own, who helps the boy save a popular local hot dog joint from a nefarious local banker. The film would be distributed in November 1985 through Concord Pictures, which was founded by Roger Corman in 1983 after selling off his interests in New World Pictures the year before. We'll be talking more about Concord Pictures in a future episode. Suffice it to say that The Dirt Bike Kid was not the box office hit anyone was hoping for. But Julie Corman would tell Ann Thompson in a July 1988 interview for the Chicago Tribune that the film would sell more than $3 million worth of video cassettes. The second film was Herbert Babenko's Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Once upon a time, in a tropical island far away, there lived a strange woman. How can you remember all that junk? If you've got the keys to that door, I will gladly follow. Otherwise, I will escape in my own way then your life is as trivial as your movies stepping into the spotlight is that legendary star that 
ravishing chanteuse, Lerny La Maison. begins with seduction. A story of love creates a passion. Dial two times, then hang up. A danger. A madness. William Hurt. Raul Julia. Sonia Braga. Kiss. Spider-Woman. The making of The Kiss of the Spider-Woman is a fascinating story, one we are saving for our episode on its distributor, Island Pictures. But it would be one of Film Dallas's biggest winners, like with Choose Me and the Dirk by Kid, they would contribute half a million dollars to the film's $1.5 million production budget, and the film would gross more than $17 million at the American box office, and millions more overseas, especially in Babenko's native Argentina. The film would be nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, and William Hurt would win the award for Best Actor. A good portion of Spider-Woman's profits would be returned to Hurt and co-star Raul Julia, who agreed to be paid the Screen Actors Guild minimum in exchange for deferred profit participation. But Film Dallas investors would see more than a 200% return on their investment. The third film they helped to finance in 1984 was Peter Masterson's The Trip to Bountiful. I would like a, a ticket to Bountiful, Where? To uh, Bountiful. I can sell you a ticket to Harrison or to Cotton, but there's no bountiful. She has a serious heart condition. It might be real serious for her to be left alone. I, I don't think she has any money, and I'd like to find her. I am not going to spend the rest of my life running after your mother. I think we ought to just turn this whole thing over to the police. I said to my papa once after our third crop failure in a row, whoever named this place Bountiful, said his papa did. Because in those days, it was a land of plenty. You just drop seeds around and crops would spring up. Guess the Lord's just with me today. <laughs> I wonder why the Lord's not with us every day. Sure would be nice if he was. The Trip to Bountiful was an adaptation of Masterson's cousin Horton Foote's 1953 play by the same name. Although Foote had been a playwright and screenwriter for decades, having won the Academy Award for adapting To Kill a Mockingbird to the screen in 1962, he was a hot commodity again in Hollywood after his original screenplay for Tender Mercies had won him a second Academy Award in 1983. Like Spider-Woman, Film Dallas would contribute $500,000 to the film's $1.5 million budget, and it would be the first Film Dallas movie that would actually shoot in the Dallas area. 
Like Spider-Woman, the movie would be picked up for distribution by Island Pictures. And like Spider-Woman, it would become an unexpected hit film, grossing nearly five times its production budget, and again returning more than 200% to film Dallas investors. And like Spider-Woman, the film would win an Academy Award for its leading performer, Geraldine Page. And like Spider-Woman, we'll do a deeper dive into the movie's history on our future episode on Island Pictures. With a few successful productions under its belt, Film Dallas would do what so many other independent film companies did in the 1980s, decide to become a distributor. And when you decide to become a distributor, you need movies. Lots of movies. And quickly. So you start picking up films that might be outside your wheelhouse, because in order to keep getting good placements of your films in the better theaters in each town, and to get your rentals paid in a timely fashion, you need to keep releasing more movies. We want to be the company that makes the films nobody else wants, controversial, on the edge of even the creative people, Grog would tell a reporter when asked about the company's new direction. Film Dallas's first acquisition as a distributor couldn't be more out of their stated mission. It would also be the best film they would ever release. Somewhere between the insane and the unreal lies the mystery of the man facing southeast. Southeast. Long after the movie is over, the mystery continues. Man Facing Southeast was an Argentinian movie in Spanish, a sort of science fiction movie without any of the regular science fiction tropes. In the movie, a mysterious man named Rantes mysteriously appears at a Buenos Aires psychiatric hospital where he gains the attention of Dr. Julio Denis, a sympathetic psychiatrist who is working through his own unhappiness. Ronte tells the doctor that he is an extraterrestrial who has been sent to Earth to observe humans and their illogical behavior firsthand. The doctor initially dismisses Ronte's claims, even though there is no record of this young man's existence. There's no birth certificate, no school records, no employment records, nothing. 
Meanwhile, the other patients at the Institute see Rantes, who spends hours each day in the hospital courtyard facing one specific direction, so that he may send and receive messages from his home planet, as some kind of savior. As the doctor gets to know his new patient better, he comes to question his own grasp on what could be real. Directed by Elicio Subiela, Man Facing Southeast would make its first North American appearance at the 1986 Toronto Film Festival, where Subiela would be awarded the International Critics Award for Best Director. A few weeks later, it would show at the Chicago International Film Festival, where the movie would be nominated for a Gold Hugo for Best Film. In Argentina, the film would win all nine awards it was nominated for from the Argentinian Film Critics Association, including Best Film, Best Director, Original Screenplay, Actor, and Cinematography. The film would open at the Cinema One in Midtown Manhattan, the Royal Theater in West Los Angeles, and on two screens at the Cineplex Beverly Center on March 13, 1987, and it would enjoy extremely good reviews from the likes of Vincent Canby of the New York Times, Kathleen Carroll of the New York Daily News, and both Sheila Benson and Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times. And while the film would never play in more than 10 theaters on any given weekend, with prints circulating from market to market as needed, and only minimal advertising support in the major markets, the film would have tremendous word of mouth and achieve something of a cult status while it was still in theaters. There was no Facebook or Twitter for film fans to talk about movies and learn about new little non-studios films in 1987, so you really had to know this film was coming to your town. I myself saw the film at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz, and I was absolutely enchanted by it. It didn't matter that it was in Spanish or that I had to occasionally lower my focus to read the subtitles. There was a real truth to the film. Even if it was some kind of Jesus and Pontius parable, which, being an atheist, I didn't pick up on all, it was simply brilliant filmmaking. It was the best science fiction movie I had seen in years. Even if its minuscule $600,000 budget would barely cover craft services on a Star Wars movie. After five months of moving all across the country slowly but surely, the film would gross $1.5 million. Not much compared to a Star Wars movie, but enough to bring Film Dallas investors a good return. If you've never seen Man Facing Southeast, I highly recommend it. Kino International put out an exceptional Blu-ray of the movie three or four years ago, and you can stream it for free with ads on FilmRise. They would also acquire an Australian film called The Right Hand Man, which today would be better known as one of Hugo Weaving's earliest starring roles. The future Agent Smith from the Matrix series would star as a stagecoach driver who would go to work for a dying one-arm aristocrat played by Englishman Rupert Everett in 1860s Australia. Di Drew's feature directorial debut, after several years of directing movies and shows for Australian television, would, in a reversal of conventional distribution norms, open on four screens in Los Angeles on September 18, 1987, including at the Universal City Cineplex 18, which had opened next to the Universal Studios Hollywood tour only two months earlier and had already become one of the highest-grossing theaters in the world. But outside of an early October playdate at the Carnegie Hall Cinema in Manhattan, a beautiful 300-seat Beaux Arts Theater built in the basement of the famed music venue, 
The movie would quickly disappear from American theaters with a gross of under $25,000, similar to its fate in its own home country, where the $5.5 million movie only grossed $9,660. At this time, The Right Hand Man is not available to purchase or rent on any kind of physical media or streaming service. Their next film would be their most controversial. I mean, I love men. I really do. But they're so predictable. How many times have we heard this? It's a man's world, baby. <laughs> Here's another good one. I know what you want. You liked it. You came back for more. And they've all got such complexes. Was he good for you? How good? I mean, what do they want? Points? Like for diving? 8.6? 6, 6.9? 3.2? 28 inches. 28 inches from nip to tip. Well, roll it out, hon. Now, are you serious? Sometimes I don't think they have the slightest clue to what we need. To what we really want. Oh, I love big women. You told her you're married, right? I'm keeping the baby. Why don't you ride down there with me? It's your problem. I'm not going to get involved in it. You told her? Let's go. Well, we can't. What do you mean, we can't? Well, I didn't get to the part where I was married yet. Well, what'd you talk about then? I told her that if she was going to go through with this, that I was going to sue her for theft of semen. Billy, for the baby. Come on, help me. What can I do? Talk to her, tell her. I don't even know her. Just introduce yourself. Did you kiss me? Mm-hmm. What about Billy? Billy's not here now, is he? Hi, Eddie. Come to Mama Billy. Stop it! Stop it! I saw you first! I don't belong to anybody. Mama's way. He's not very bright, is he? <laughs> it's a dim, dim light. <laughs> You've got the philosophy of a dog. Come on. You know, you know, if you can't fuck it or eat it, then piss on it, right? Do <laughs> <laughs> you think that uh, it would be all right if uh, I called you? Sure. I'd like that. Patty Rocks. It's a man's world, right? But it wouldn't be nothing without a woman. Directed by David Burton Morris, Patty Rocks was a follow-up of sorts to the 1975 film Loose Ends, which he had written and directed with his wife, Victoria Wozniak. The $30,000 film would feature Chris Mulkey and John Jenkins as Billy and Eddie, two best friends who wish an escape from their depressing Minneapolis lives. Patty Rocks, which takes place a dozen years later, would be mostly improvised by its three lead stars, Mulkey, Jenkins, and Karen Landry, the titular Patty and the real-life wife of Mulkey, with an outline created by Morris. In the film, Billy, who is married with two kids, discovers he has gotten his side fling in another city pregnant, and talks Eddie into going on a road trip to tell Patty he's married and ask her to get an abortion. The trip to Patty's is filled with the kind of dude banter reserved for two 30-something friends 
who never quite grew up, no matter what happened in their lives, while their friendship turns once they arrive at her place. The film would start to come together when Morris was at the Sundance Film Festival in 1983 for his film Purple Haze, and he would meet Gwen Field, a former assistant to Gene Wilder, who was looking for a movie on which she could become a producer. Once Morris, Mulkey, Jenkins, and Landry were done whipping up their improvisations into a cohesive screenplay, Field would take the idea to Sam Grog in Film Dallas, who decided to finance the entire $350,000 production themselves in late October 1986. But with one provision, the film needed to go into production no later than December 3rd. Field, Morris, and his production team got to work and would make that deadline, but just barely. Filming on Patty Rocks would start in Minneapolis on December 3rd. However, Morris would contract pneumonia three days into production, and he would continue to work through the illness for the remaining three weeks of shooting, which would end on December 23rd. He allowed himself some bed rest once the film was done shooting, as his wife was due to give birth to their first child on January 15th. Once mother and child were back home, Morris would get to putting the picture together, and he would be done with his cut after eight months. He felt he had made a very feminist movie, allowing Patty's truths to counteract Billy and Eddie's rampant chauvinism. But when Film Dallas submitted the movie to the MPAA's rating board in August 1987, the film would get slapped with the dreaded X rating, not because of any of the sex scenes, but because of the number of times the characters say, fuck. Morris would appeal the rating, stating that it would be impossible to edit out many of the obscenities as they were illustrating important aspects of the characters, and they were peppered throughout the dialogue. In fact, the word fuck would be used a total of 73 times during Patty Rock's 86-minute running time. They would also point out that there were many Hollywood movies that used fuck far more often than Patty Rock's, but were able to get our ratings. But the ratings board would deny their appeal. So Grog would start watching a number of recent R-rated Hollywood movies that were rated R for language and counted the number of times fuck was uttered in them. Grog would schedule a second appeal with the ratings board where he would point out the hypocrisy of the MPAA to allow a movie like Brian De Palma's Scarface to be rated R with all of its violence and all 206 usages of the word fuck, but rate a movie like Patty Rocks, which features no violence whatsoever and nearly one-third of the uses of the word fuck to be rated X, which would effectively narrow the available potential audience and thus the potential gross. The movie would be re-rated R without any further cuts. One person who would remember the ratings fight was the film's first assistant director, Kirby Dick, who would become an acclaimed documentary filmmaker, making This Film Is Not Yet Rated in 2006, which highlighted the hypocrisy of the MPA rating system when it came to rating Hollywood movies versus independence. The film would open at the Waverly Twin Theater near Washington Square in Lower Manhattan and at the Goldwyn Westside Pavilion Cinemas in Los Angeles on January 15th 1988. Critics loved the film, celebrating it as wonderfully funny, profane, and poignant, Cosmopolitan Magazine, an outrageous sex farce with scathing humor, Playboy Magazine, a movie as symbolic as it is gritty, 
the village voice, and hilariously vulgar, L Magazine. Miss Magazine would go for the rather bad pun of Don't Miss Patty. Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times would admire how the film was full of the life that most Hollywood movies would usually let leech out. And even in her mostly negative review, Janet Maslin of the New York Times would note the film was notable for its exceptional eagerness, even if she found the film to be hopelessly ordinary without being particularly frank. Ironically, the film would open on the same day as the Molly Ringwald PG-13 rated unexpected teen pregnancy dramedy for keeps. But despite the ratings controversy and the exceptional reviews, much better than for keeps, Patty Rocks would have trouble finding an audience. Many theaters would shy away from booking the film despite the R rating, and it would play out after only three months and $345,000 in ticket sales. Not the biggest loser for Film Dallas, but it hurts when a film can't even gross its modest production budget. When the film arrived at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz in mid-February, I went to see it with my best friend, Dick Hollywood. I wanted to see it because I was intrigued by the ratings controversy. He wanted to see it because of Chris Mulkey, who Dick had liked from his appearance in First Blood, but had worked with a few years earlier on Quiet Cool, a low-budget film from New Line Cinema which had been shot in Santa Cruz two and a half years earlier. I loved the movie because I was fascinated with how Morris handled the shifting tones of the film. While Dick thought the actors were fantastic, especially his good buddy, the Mulky Man. While the film is exceptional, it's not really one of those feel good films you revisit time and time again. Maybe I'll catch it again someday, especially now that I'm about as far from Billy and Eddie today on this side of aging as I was on the other side when I was first introduced to them. If you've never seen it, it's a film that's worth a viewing, but unfortunately at this time, Patty Rocks is not available for purchase or rent on any kind of physical media or streaming service outside of purchasing an old VHS tape off of Amazon. Their next two films, Brazil's Subway to the Stars and Canada's Night Zoo, were their respective country submission for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, but neither movie would get nominated. I'm putting the two films together like this as Film Dallas would release them five days apart at the end of March 1988. Carlos de Ege's Subway to the Stars was one of the more important films to come out of Brazil as they moved from more than two years of a dictatorial ruling class back into democracy after José Sarney's election as president in 1985. In the movie, a young man who plays the saxophone, already struggling to make ends meet, finds himself compelled to look for his missing girlfriend. He travels through the seedy underbelly of Rio via the subway system, searching in vain to answers to questions he may never get to ask, and discovering a world he had been sheltered from for his entire life. Jean-Claude Lazon's debut feature Night Zoo follows Marcel, a felon recently released from prison, who tries to rebuild his life with his girlfriend, who has turned to prostitution while he was away in order to survive, and his father, who thinks he was just away on a long business trip overseas. Marcel also has to deal with two corrupt police officers who think he knows the location of some missing drug money. Subway to the Stars would open at the prestigious Lincoln Plaza Cinemas, just across the street from Lincoln Center on the Upper West Side, on Friday, March 25th, and Night Zoo would open at the Cinema 2, just across the street from Bloomingdale's on the Upper East Side on Wednesday, March 30th. 
And that would be it for both of them. Two weeks and gone. Money was starting to dry up for Film Dallas by this point, and they would sell off the distribution rights to Clive Donner's romantic drama Stealing Heaven to Scotty Brothers Pictures, who we covered in episode 44, so they could have enough money to release Da. Da. Two days ago, Charlie's dad died. You don't want to drop me. Well, sort of. And now, returning to his father's home, Charlie finds he's been left an unusual inheritance. Love, guilt, and total confusion. Da, the story of a man confronting his father's spirit. Do you see this? Do you know what this is? It's a death certificate. It's your death certificate. And his own youth. Something up. You're a bit of a disappointment. I mean, I thought I'd do better for myself. God. Now what? Glasses. I'm blind as well. Reliving memories of times past. Women should be given a damn good squeeze and thereafter avoided. Da, a film of self-discovery. It doesn't screw off. What? Me leg. A film about life. Please leave me alone. You're dead. You're in Dean's Grange in a box six feet under with her. I carried you. It's over. You're gone. So get out of my head. And death. What was it like? What? Dying. I didn't care for it. Martin Sheen. I should have stuck up for you. And I could have hated you instead of myself. Bonard Hughes. And that wasn't a lie. That was a make-up. And William Hickey. The one surviving particle of my knowledge is that in the public house lavatory, incoming traffic has the right of way. Matt Clark's Da was another film that really didn't fit into Film Dallas's wheelhouse, about an American playwright who sees visions of his late father when he travels to Ireland to bury him. But it did have a genuine movie star in its lead, Martin Sheen, and two beloved supporting actors in Barnard Hughes, who had won a Tony Award in 1978 for his role as Da on Broadway, and William Hickey, who had been nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar Award three years earlier for his performance in Pritzi's Honor. Working again with Julie Corman, Film Dallas would fully finance the $3 million production, which was entirely shot in and around Dublin. Sheen had optioned the screen rights to the play while it was still playing on Broadway, and had spent a decade trying to get any company to help him make it into a movie, even taking a massive pay cut from his usual fee to help make that happen. Daw would open in New York City on April 29th, in Los Angeles in mid-June, and in Chicago in early July. The reviews were respectful, but audiences were mostly not interested in attending an Irish comedy drama in the late spring and early summer. And why would they when they could see Crocodile Dundee 2, or Willow, or Critters 2, or The Great Outdoors? Daw would survive for a couple of months in a handful of art house theaters, but it would only be able to generate about $644,000 in ticket sales. At this time, Daw is not available to purchase or rent on any kind of physical media or streaming service. And it seemed that that would be the final nail in the coffin for the company. There had been too many losers and not enough winners to keep any kind of money flowing back to the investors 
or to the company to finance and release more films. They would need to stop pre-production on a film that was supposed to start shooting outside Dallas that summer called Howling at the Moon, the story of the notorious Old West outlaw John Wesley Hardin, which was to star Gary Busey. The film never got made. But there was still one completed movie left in the pipeline, already filmed in the summer of 1987, completely paid for and ready for release, and Grog and Bernie would find the money to give it one last chance. Hey, meet Spike. You know what people say to me? Spike, do you have political ambition, political goals? Are you seeking the throne of office? I say no. I'm just trying to get a little piece of the pie. He's Bensonhurst's biggest knockout. I could be like another Sugar Ray Leonard. Nice kid, just a little screwed up. None of us been able to control. A headstrong rebel. I'm Italian, from Bensonhurst. Who thinks he's got it all figured out. A mafia connection. I get a little piece of turf from your father. Every cucina on 18th Avenue is going to know who I am. So maybe start eating some real pasta, you know? But I don't mean that stuff out of the can. No, never. I know. I always make it fresh out of the box. He was loved by many. What has that? Too many. Disgusting. And he's getting himself in big trouble. You stay the hell away from my angel. My father wants Justin to think that the baby I'm going to have... What baby? Your baby. So what about India? He's having your baby, too. You don't want the baby? What do you want to show off your stomach for? The work came down. You did it, Bensonhurst. I can't be exiled from Bensonhurst. Now Spike's in way over his head. Who do you want to marry anyway, me or my father? Whatever. He's down for the count with only one way out. Organized crime! That's right, organized crime. It's the comedy that's a knockout. Spike of Bensonhurst. This arrangement here is un-Italian. For certain Cineas, the name Paul Morrissey brings forth a certain image. Morrissey, for many years, was the filmmaker for Andy Warhol's factory. From the 1965 early experimental feature Chelsea Girls to the early 70s sexy horror films Flesh for Frankenstein and Blood for Dracula, Paul Morrissey gained a certain global notoriety for pushing the boundaries of acceptable taste on celluloid. But when Warhol decided to concentrate on his pop art creations in 1975, Morrissey would find it more difficult to get his films made without the Andy Warhol name attached to them. After years of working on the fringe of independent cinema, making films like The Armchair Hacker and Forty Deuce, which would star a pre-diner Kevin Bacon as a young hustler in New York City, Morrissey would get himself out of movie jail when Film Dallas agreed to finance his $3 million comedy, Spike of Bensonhurst. Up-and-coming actor Sasha Mitchell stars as Spike Fumo, an Italian-American kid aspiring to be a boxer. Spike falls for and impregnates a spoiled rich girl who turns out to be the daughter of a mafia boss. When he is threatened by the mob boss, he hides out in the heavily Puerto Rican Red Hook, about five miles north of Bensonhurst and a million miles away culturally. Spike gets himself into even more trouble when he gets his buddy Bandana's sister pregnant as well. Spike of Bensonhurst is a silly but fun throwaway comedy that works as well as it does because of Mitchell, who has charisma and charm to spare, as well as his co-stars Ernest Borgnine, Rick Aviles, Annie DeSalvo, and Sylvia Miles, as well as the major feature debuts of two of the most beautiful women to ever grace the silver screen, Talisa Soto 
who would already be in production on the next James Bond movie, Licensed to Kill, by the time Spike of Bensonhurst was released, and Maria Petillo, who would star in the ill-fated Godzilla movie with Matthew Broderick ten years later. Spike of Bensonhurst would open in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York City on November 11, 1988, and no one could accuse Film Dallas of not aiming for the fences. Six theaters in Chicago, 14 theaters in Los Angeles, and no less than 73 theaters in the New York City metro area, including six theaters in Manhattan and seven in Brooklyn. But once again, Film Dallas would strike out with audiences, even if the film got good reviews from the likes of Roger Ebert, Janet Maslin, David Anson of Newsweek, and Movie Line magazine. The film would be gone from theaters just before Christmas with a final gross of $623,000. At this time, Spike of Bensonhurst is not available for purchase or rent on any kind of physical media streaming service. And like that, they were gone. But interestingly enough, despite the fact that film Dallas only lasted four years, and a number of years before the commercial development of the World Wide Web, someone created and maintained a website for the company, FilmDallasPictures.com, between 2007 and 2019. One person who would come out of the failure of Film Dallas unscathed was Bob Burney, who in the years to come would help shape the independent film distribution world for decades to come, first as the head of New Line's Fine Line division, then as the head of IFC Films, where he would oversee the release of such films as Itu Mama Tambien and My Big Fat Greek Wedding, while he also assisted New Market Films with their release of Christopher Nolan's breakthrough film Memento. He would soon leave IFC Films to become the president of New Market Films, then leave New Market to start his own distribution company, Picture House. And that's our episode on the quick rise and fall of Film Dallas Pictures. Thank you for joining us. On our next episode, we will be bringing in our first official guest host, writer, producer, and director Sarah Bullion, to talk about a radical concept in genre films, grounded genre. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.